Hi, thanks for tuning in and welcome to the latest episode of Unspun, a podcast by Population. This week, we're going to talk about the importance of values-aligned supply chain partnerships with Ariane Lawn. Don't go away. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome to Unspun, a podcast by Population, unraveling what's holding us back from regeneration and liberation in the fashion and home industries. I'm Lauren Hill. I'm Danielle Arzaga. And I'm Catherine Tedrow. We're the founders of Population, a change agency blending the creative and strategic to embed an integrated approach to sustainability into brand, marketing, and business model strategy. We convene the much-needed conversations about systems change by centering stakeholders across the entire value chain, all the way from supply to demand to co-create solutions to the biggest sustainability challenges facing our industry. Today, we're speaking with Aryan Lan about a unique approach to supply chain partnership. Aryan is one of three partners in Pactix, a manufacturer that is produced for the world's largest luxury brands. Today, they work with brands that share their values to drive sustainability. Hi, Aryan. It's a pleasure to have you on Unspun. Welcome. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for the um, invitation. Absolutely. We're thrilled to have you here. Ariane, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and why and how you came to the role you're currently in at Pactix? Yeah, it probably doesn't make any sense, actually, because originally I'm a nurse. Uh, so uh, I'm from Amsterdam. So the first 10 years of my life, I worked as a nurse in a hospital in Amsterdam and general management, general nurse. And, and then I worked 10 years for Doctors Without Borders, Médecins Sans Frontières. Maybe you know them, a big medical mm-hmm. uh, organization worldwide. I worked five years in the field, as they say it, in different war zones in the world, in Africa, uh, also in the Bosnia in that time, in Bangladesh, refugee camps, Iraq, all those kind of stuff. And five years in the headquarters of Amsterdam as responsible for human resources globally for MSF Holland at that time. And after 20 years of NGOs and non-profit, I thought maybe I want to see how profit life is look like. <laughs> so I did an MBA. And um, after some difficulties, because nobody wanted to hire a guy with only non-profit organization in a business, but I ended up by uh, a family company that um, is one of the richest family actually of the Netherlands, and they had a big investment portfolio. And I worked 10 years for them, also as a human resource director, responsible for Europe and also later Asia. And then I became 50. And after 10 years of traveling and working hard, whatever, I thought, let's take a break, do something else. So I quit my job. And it was in 2010. It was in the midst of the crisis. So Everybody was saying I'm crazy, had a good job, and everything. But uh, I really felt that I wanted to do something else. So I took a small break. We have, uh, together with my wife, we have a, a wonderful farm in France where we um, have an organic farm where we do uh, cheese and we have some cows and stuff. Easy farm life, let's say, mm-hmm. but very hard, actually. Yeah, easy, but very hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard working with very little money. But uh, it is, uh, as a way of life, it's actually uh, quite nice. And it, it gave me back a, a bit of perspective on certain things. And, and then um, I uh, ended up in, uh, in Cambodia for a one-year assignment to work with an, uh, a Dutch NGO that had a couple of social enterprises here in Simrip. 
and they had some difficulties and I was you know, asked to be one year and, and sort some things out. And that is um, that it's now eight years ago. So I, um, I, I ended up in Cambodia. And when that job was finished, actually, I was approached by the Uncle Hospital for Children to be a chief business officer. And the Uncle Hospital for Children is, is a big children's hospital, uh, 100% uh, driven by donations. For two years, uh, had an assignment. And when that was finished, I was actually planning to go to France. And then Pete Holton approached me and said, can you help me with tactics? Because we're getting bigger and I need somebody to help structure and help me. So I thought, why not? I didn't know anything about manufacturing. So this is in 2017. So, okay, new new kind of thing. It was a, a kind of a new thing for me. And I thought, well, why not? Let's give it a try. And that was four years ago, five years ago now nearly. Um, and at a certain stage, I had the opportunity to, to buy also part of the shares. And I said, okay, why not? Let's let's make it something. And let's see if we can uh, drive it to, uh, to something uh, even more beautiful, which is, of course, uh, quite a journey. Of all the so that, chapters. That is in short. That is in short. Uh, yeah, of, of all those chapters of your life. I mean, and now you're in, in the Pactix chapter. And Pactix seems like they're really doing some truly revolutionary work in the supplier brand dynamic. What makes Pactix unique and maybe unique to the relationships with organizations and brands that you've seen over the years and all of the work you've done? Yeah, for me, of course, because my experience is, is relatively limited, but I can say that what we try to do is to be a really a kind of an extension of the brand and try to understand what they want, what they need, and, and get some extra services to them and think with them on lots of difficult things. I mean, everybody's talking about sustainability, but it's, of course, is a, it's a big hollow thing in the end because what is sustainable? If you make very nice products that's recycled, but you still have to fly everything in, is that sustainable? So there is a lot of angles that you can take. Uh, and we try to think with our clients what could be uh, the best solutions, let's say. And that under a condition that we try to create for our workers, that is, uh, again, uh, nice and to be as fair as, as possible. There is, of course, the. I, mean, I guess you have the big division between the big brands, where we also have some business with, and the, the smaller brands, more like mission-driven lifestyle companies, and there's a big difference between them. The size really matters. Uh, the bigger the brand, the more difficult to negotiate and spread the risk in general, I could say. And the smaller and where you share the same values, uh, the easier it is. And we're trying to diversify as much as possible also to, to other clients and other products. So Pactex was originally, maybe that's good to say, a brand that was producing 100% for the eyewear industry. So cleaning cloth and pouches where you put your glasses in. Very simple product, but tens of million pieces a year. Uh, but in fact, it, in the end, it's a packaging. It's nothing else. It's not, a, it's not a final product. It's something that comes with your classes. So in 2017, when I came, we decided to diversify into the travel and luggage. So bags, shopping bags, backpacks, all those kind of things. And that has been uh, a quite uh, successful. It's hard, but we're slowly getting there because we make now also 
quite some complicated bags for some brands in Europe and also in the US and trying to get more customers in that uh, specific field. Uh, and it's, of course, a completely different product. The price is completely different. It's quite difficult to make uh, different fabrics. Everything is different. The order quantities are different. But we try to focus on those clients that want to see their supplier also as an extension of the brand because you should be proud of um, how the things are being made. You should not try to you know, uh, shield it off and nobody should know and just do the audits and make sure that you're compliant, which is a bit of a, excuse the word, cover my ass uh, kind of policy, <laughs> of course. But in fact, as long as it's cheap and good, and they're okay. But there's not that extra dimension of that they also really care about how do things are made, and even proud to show it on, on their own website. So uh, that's a completely different conversation you have then with those brands. And that evolves into something like a partnership. And it doesn't mean that we don't fight about money or things or uh, things that go wrong, of course. But the bottom line is, of course, that you always try to find a way to solve the problem in such a way that you're both uh, can be happy and, and and want to continue and make sure you don't do it you do it better next time for whatever reason and we've seen that of course very clearly uh, in the last one year and half also the different approaches with the different brands on on how they look at their supplier and we were in the fortunate situation that uh, we had a couple of brands that helped us very nicely and we also helped them when they had difficulty so it's the, the give and take kind of thing well, with the bigger brands, it's a, bit, it's a bit more tough in that sense. It's the money that counts. It's a shareholder value in the end. That is the, the most dominant thing. And um, it's not that they are not listening, but the negotiations are a little bit more tough, I would say. We are curious, you know, from your perspective, if you think that the size of a company says anything about business values. You kind of mentioned like shareholder value for these larger brands. And, and you mentioned a little bit early on about, you know, how the size of a manufacturer and the size of a brand can have make changes or, or impact the nature of a relationship and the ability to spread risk or, or develop partnership. Do you think that larger brands values are inherently kind of in tension with sustainability that might make it more challenging to get them to buy into spreading risks with their manufacturing partners? Yeah, I think in general, I guess there's two dimensions, probably more, but one is size, size matters. The, the, the bigger brands are, the more buying power uh, they have, let's say. The, the possibility to put money aside or to invest in certain things is for a brand, of course, big brands completely different than for us. We're you know, a relatively small company. And what they make in a day, we probably uh, have to work hard in a year. So you're not on the same level financially. That is one. They want to be big also, so they have a better uh, negotiation position, I guess. So that is one mechanism. But I think there is also, in general, I think there's there's exceptions everywhere always. But in general, there's also, if you're a listed company or a family-owned company, it's also different. I work for a family-owned company myself, and those companies, certainly when it's in a generation kind of thing, generations, they look for the longer term. 
it's not the short term. If you're a listed company, you look at uh, the next three months and you need to optimize your numbers. So your focus on, uh, on all kinds of things, of course, is completely different. So that is very, very general, I think. So if you have the combination of a, a relatively smaller company and it's family-owned or privately owned, then you have a conversation from owner to owner instead of you know me talking with the purchasing officer of a big brand, which is they have their own systems, their bonuses are depending on you know, certain budgets that has to be uh, savings and cost savings and efficiencies and whatever. So they're going to achieve it because they get the bonus. They don't see the bigger picture. They just have their own their own uh, matrix uh, where they have to work in. Of course. So there is a different a different relationship in that sense. Then when you talk with another business owner who understands the difficulties of the cash flows and the financial risk you take and the people you have to keep on the payroll and all those things that that comes with it. So in general, I think that's what I experienced at least in the last four or five years is very much the case. So we are specifically then also focusing for the companies that, that share the same value, not only the shareholder value, but also the other values that are uh, important because it makes the conversation so much easier. And it doesn't mean that the work is always easier because it's still hard work and there's a lot of things, but the conversation when there is something going on is definitely much more pleasant. And in the end, we all work, I guess, also we all want to make some money, but also we want to have a, a pleasant time, right? I mean, it's not only the money that counts in the end, at least not for me. So um, uh, if you feel that's on the other side the same, and there's a bit of give and take and understanding uh, of each other's positions and the financial risk we take, then, uh, then, then it's much more nice and that you always feel that you have to take the financial risk. Don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, <laughs> it does. And you mentioned a little bit earlier, Arian, you know, there are brands who are interested in actually developing a real deep partnership with their supply chain partners. And then there are brands who really just are going to audit you and prescribe improvements and move on. And, and that's the level of their engagement. And from that traditional audit approach, manufacturers are monitored against brands' expectations or their codes of conduct, their internal standards and then prescribed improvements based on those expectations. From your perspective and your experience working with brands who may be having more of an audit-centric approach versus brands who have a partnership and relationship building approach, is auditing or the auditing approach the right mechanism for ensuring sustainability is occurring in supply chains, particularly as it relates to human rights issues? No, I don't think so, to be honest. And I get completely crazy over these audits. And everybody wants his own audits, and it's slightly different. And I don't know how much time we spent on auditing, but considerable amount of time and money, which could be used for other things. We are we have certifications, and then we are also, I mean, because we're in Cambodia, you have the better factory thing, so you have the general audit already. And then there are still companies who want, no, I want this, I want this. And it's most of the time, it's, uh, it's also a ticking of the box. Uh, to be honest, and you get uh, you get sometimes a crazy non-compliance things which are really not non-compliance. I mean, it can also be about the fire extension who should be forty centimeters from the door, and the other one should be one and a half meters, and this and that. It's all it is, you know, just ticking boxes. But it's got nothing to do with 
looking really at a company and how it is functioning and, and what is the philosophy behind it. It's just a, it's a paperwork. I don't say it is completely useless, but the way we do it now, I think, is not giving us any real added value. I see it more as a burden because I know we are compliant. I mean, and there's always things we maybe could do better or that are slipping down a little bit. So in that sense, it's good as a kind of a you know checkpoint every now and then. But our basic philosophy is to follow the law and, and even to try to do better than that. But every day you still have to sign statements that you do that. You know, So it is, uh, again, it, for me, it's not really adding the value that it should. And I, I think we it should be much better to go to a, a kind of a general approach. And if brands want to dive a little bit deeper, then you have to dive deeper, but not deeper in the in, only in the books, but also a little bit in the philosophy and, and how that company is run and how it is organized. We see also, and I know that from experience, that some companies are audited very nicely. It looks all very good, but then biggest part of the production is probably outsourced. So what you mm-hmm. audit is actually not what they make. So again, on, in, in the papers, it all looks very nice. In practice, of course, it is a completely different thing. We hardly outsource, uh, which is really only when we cannot do something or we don't have the machinery when we ask somebody else to make it for us. But it is a very, very, very small part. And there's companies who live on it. They have maybe mm-hmm. a core team of 50 or 100 people, and the other four, 300 people are, are, are working somebody else in, in, on the conditions that nobody ever will know. So it's a kind of a fake. Again, it's a, it's a cover my ass. Sorry for excusing, using the word again, but it's not. It's, it's for the compliance and the risk officers. You know, we got everything checked and everything looks nice. But we could do this much better. I'm wondering, Aryan, if you could speak. You were saying about how you know, the auditing kind of system, the social compliance that we normally operate under is not a functioning system. It's not really having the impact that we're hoping for. Do you have any kind of ideas or ways that we could improve our social compliance? Yeah, I know. I also have been thinking about about that, actually. But there is, before we go, I just wanted to say one thing also, because what was really strange for me, uh, me, being new in the industry, that I had to sign all the time all those papers that we were completely social compliant and we didn't do any bad things and, and stuff. And from the client, I didn't know. I don't know if they pay their taxes and if they treat their people mm-hmm. well. And I have no clue. Um, so yeah. it's all, I mean, it's always the focus that the suppliers are the bad guys mm. and the brands are doing all fantastic and uh, nothing wrong there. Which is, of course, nonsense. And why are, in the end, of course, why are sometimes suppliers squeezed and, and need to do certain things? Because the payment and the risk uh, is completely on the supplier side. So you have to be very creative to work around that. Now, there is, uh, if you run a factory, there's a couple of big costs that is material and it's your labor. So these are the two elements you can play with. You, you can you can lower your stock a little bit, or you can uh, negotiate with uh, the fabric supplier to have a different payment terms, or you can play around with the amount of people you have, and then you get into the outsourcing. So work with a small core, so your your cost is minimum, and then if you have more, you outsource, and that is a hundred percent consequence of the payment terms of brands. And the forecasting and sharing the risk if something 
uh, goes wrong. So it feels so like, you know, you put all the financial risk on us, and then, uh, but you want us to be 100% uh, compliant, and we have no clue <laughs> how you are doing. That is what I found very strange. This is this is a bit uh, is a bit unfair. Mm-hmm. I, how do I know you pay your taxes and you do everything you should do? So I'm I'm actually working on a kind of a contract where okay, I'm happy to sign your contract, but this this is my contract. You know, I also want to know for sure a few things from your side. Yeah, uh, because it just feels sense. like very unfair. It's is not a fair power. A balance, and I'm sure that the bigger brands say, "Oh, uh, not going to sign it, of course." And we find somebody else. Okay, fine. It was just, it's just a realization for me that it's this is weird. I, I was, I was nearly feeling that first of all they own us, so um, mm-hmm. they tell us exactly what we have to do. Well, mm-hmm. uh, sorry, we're our own company. I make the decisions uh, together with my other colleagues, of course, and um, we think what is best for us and the company, and it's not. The brand that is deciding this is good for your people. How do they know when you're in an office in whatever, Hong Kong, Michigan, uh, New York, or London, it doesn't matter. How the hell can you know what is good for the people here in in Reap in Cambodia? You have no clue. Sorry. And I've seen too much of the world to believe in that. So that is all, you know, it's all paperwork, frameworks, checklists. But the world is not a checklist. So that is that's one part of the, and we, we do that because otherwise it's getting very complicated. So we want mm-hmm. to make things simple for ourselves. So we put it in a in a framework and then we say, oh yeah, that is that, that is that, that is that. So that, that is of course how we want to deal with risk, but it doesn't mean that we do that. And I think the real uh, thing is if you're interested as a brand in how you supply your works, you should see each other often and you should go there and look and check yourself because you can see a lot when you walk around and when you spend a few days. What is it if you spend a few days of your whole working year with your supplier looking what is going on? See how they treat the people, see how the things are working. It's also a matter of just checking it yourself and ask maybe a few nasty questions and see what, uh, what the answer is. And then you still can have a, again, we have two certificates with, that basically guarantees that we do everything according to the law. Otherwise, we wouldn't have that certificate. So mm-hmm. why checking again? I don't know how many times I signed a document that we don't uh, employ any children. Um, mm-hmm. We don't. You know, have to do it again. It's in the SA 8000 certification. It's in the Better Factory certificate. Why again? So it is just, it is the attitude, I guess. And the real, the real answer is of course not an easy one, but I think it would be really nice if, if if there would be one standard. And then as a brand, if you want something a little bit more specific and because you think that is important, okay, have then a couple of additional questions which, which are not covered by that. And then we, we can take it from there instead of every time exactly the same thing. And I know it can take two, three days. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it costs thousands and thousands of dollars. I have to free up two, three people every time so and it's a useless exercise i'm curious before we we move on to our closing questions just to circle back to the contracts and thinking about you know if we're going to shift 
the social compliance industry, from what I'm hearing from you, it's more about, okay, if, if the manufacturer is being held accountable to the brand, the brand also needs to be held accountable to the manufacturer. And the way that you're looking to do that is through a contract. Would you be able or willing to share a little bit more about like, what are those requirements that you are putting in those contracts with brands? It would be that we expect, let's say, that if if certain commitments are made, that they are really uh, followed because we have to make all the pre-investments. We have to buy the material. We have to have the people on the payroll. So if you say you're going to order 10,000 pieces, at, uh, that at least that is going to be a commitment. It's not, uh, uh, and there's always a bit of a gray area, of course, between the forecast and the commitment. But at least if you give a forecast that you commit to at least the material uh, requirements, because I have to order two, three, four months in advance. Mm-hmm. So I have to make that financial commitment already and have to pay the suppliers. Uh, that's one thing. If there is anything happening that is out of our scope, and that could be COVID, it could be an earthquake, it could be a container ship where he's blocking a Suez Canal, this is not our fault. There's nothing we can do about it. And if there's any kind of delay or, or adding cost, then we would like to have the, um, the right to claim at least a part of that cost, because now most of the time we have to share it ourselves. I must say that our, our clients are quite are good about that. Let's say specifically in the travel and luggage is, is very open conversations about that. The other domains is a bit more it's a bit more difficult. Uh, container prices went up from um, uh, three thousand dollar to fourteen sixteen thousand dollar to the US in mm-hmm. a year time. Perfect. So yeah. I mean it, it's eating your profit very quickly. And just to talk about that, you know, that can we share that and and do that quickly and fast because it's. Cash flow is the is the biggest problem. So mm-hmm. all those things related to to cash flow is uh, are extremely important because that is the biggest trick. The other is payment terms, of course. I mean, um, in some of the um, industries, 150 days, 120 days, uh, whatever, uh, and then you can get your money earlier. But then you have to get factoring. There's also cost to that. There's no added value for me there. I mean, I just I have to pay to get my money in time. Let's say, which is a bit of a weird concept. Also, so it's another business model actually for the big brands, but it doesn't add any value for the for the customer in that sense. So have decent payment terms. Again, have have any kind of risks that are taken in terms of investments or whatever that are being uh, let's say open and and shared with. We worked, uh, and it was very nice experience uh, with one brand. And that even gave us an advance of a considerable amount of money to make the investments to make their products. Now, that is, that is extremely helpful uh, because to free up another few hundred thousand dollars to, uh, to buy machines and stuff and do everything is, is, is sometimes extremely difficult. Getting a loan in Cambodia is, is close to impossible. So financing options are very limited. So you all have to do it with money that is or comes available. So if you have partners to understand that and think, okay, we share that risk and we give you part of that investment and that is paid back in, in certain terms, that's the way, in fact, I think it should work. Uh, so these are kind of elements that uh, that would be in that contract. Uh, I was yesterday in a meeting with the Star uh, Alliance, I, I guess you mm-hmm. know this, uh, and they had this white paper and I just went through it yesterday, but a couple of those elements are exactly there. And I think that's important. It's all... I mean, social compliance is important, and there will be always companies, and, and it's everywhere in the world, in 
every sector. I've seen too, too much in different sectors in that sense to recognize it's not the case that are trying to operate in the gray area. You always have that. It will be 20, 30% for sure. So let's accept that, that it is, and, and focus very much on that we keep an eye on them. And then for the other, let's, let's get the standards right and then make sure that they have the right, let's say, there's the right spread of financial risk to make sure they can uh, run the business correctly and don't have to do those things because you don't mm-hmm. want to do those things. I don't mm-hmm. want to fire people because suddenly uh, an order drops. It's not nice. Not nice at all. It costs you a lot of money. It is not nice for the people themselves. When you have to restart, you have to start all over again and train and whatever. So it is not a nice thing to do at all for nobody. So why would I do it? It's not like to do, let's hire 100 people and let's fire 100 people. It's, it's no, that these, these are relatively big decisions. So you don't want to do that. But you only can do that when there is a shared financial risk. So social compliance is directly linked with that. It's not only, it's not the only factor, but it is certainly an important factor. Thank you for that. I feel like what we know instinctually, and it does, it just seems like common sense. And so it's, it's kind of incredible that we have to even be having these conversations or asking these questions. (laughs) Um, I mean, it just seems like the right thing to do for everyone, even the brands in the long term. It would work out better for them in the end as well. Yeah, and and, but if you allow me to zoom out, because, I mean, this is not unique to manufacturing. Mm. Uh, This is happening in many different sectors. This is a, a bigger systematic thing but certainly also uh, very much uh, valid for manufacturing and then garment manufacturing, of course. And there's always the focus on the horrible conditions and situations. But uh, there is never, and, and then the finger pointing to the, to the bad suppliers, there's never a real good analysis. Why are they uh, doing this? But uh, there is a, a bigger systematic thing to question there. And in the end, that responsibility uh, lies, of course, partly with uh, consumers to be well informed Mm. how your brand actually is dealing with the supplier and what are their payment terms. And do you want to buy a very expensive something if brand thing, if if that brand actually is paying his suppliers three, four, five, six months after they had received the goods? Is that something to be proud of? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, Arjen, that almost actually already sounds like the answer to our next one of our last questions that we always ask. What is the number one question you're asking the industry right now, or we should be asking to achieve real change? And I almost feel like you just perfectly asked it. Do you really want to be buying yeah, I think a what, brand what, what, that's uh, not yeah. paying yeah. their workers? Yeah. What uh, what are you uh, again? What is your engagement to social compliance in terms of spreading your financial risk, and and uh, what are your payment terms? Yeah, mm-hmm. the terms are huge. And if it's 120, 150 days, you can talk a lot about social compliance but uh, and sustainability and all that kind of thing, but that's that's a bit of, uh, yeah. you know what I mean. I don't think consumers even even know, no, no. have any concept of payment terms and suppliers and their and brand of course, the, the question is, do they have to, or do, can you blame them, right? Can't blame uh, them the, at the, all, just... It's just the information no, it is, uh, out there. But if there would be, I mean, suppliers have to be very transparent and, and sign hundreds of documents what they do. But I think if there would be question about how brands deal with this, with their supply chain, I think that would, and would be completely transparent about it. 
I'm transparent about what we pay our workers. It's not it's no problem sharing. But and I have to pay uh, every two weeks, by the way. And so we are in Cambodia, you pay every two weeks salary, even if somebody's with a long-term contract doesn't matter. Every two weeks there is a payment. I have to make these payments every two weeks. So how can I do that if I get paid five months after something is made? Basically, I'm pre-financing. Right, you're a bank. <laughs> In addition to being a manufacturer, with the bank, with the bank. a bank again, with no, you are, don't get to collect interest. And our and our revenue is probably a half percent of uh, of what the big brands are. So yeah. it's a bit of a strange. And but if you do that all over the place, of course, it's it's a financial model. Is there anyone, Ariane, that is challenging that model? Anyone we've kind of coined it our unspun yeah. heroes on the show. Is there anyone that you specifically want to shout out in the industry that you feel like is really creating a different pathway or a different way to challenge the status quo? Yeah, I know. I've been the last few years, I mean, the first two years have been very busy uh, with the tactics on itself. I've not been too many places in the last two years and not also been but like I see there is a movement coming. And like I said yesterday also in, in that panel, you see that these things are on the table now. The biggest thing is how suppliers are, are loners, right? We have our own little factory and we deal with our clients and we have the big world outside. But there is no coalition of suppliers because it is your direct competition. We make a couple of products, so they have a few options. So if they're unhappy with you and what you require on payment terms to go to, to the next one, and there's an overcapacity also. So the power we have as an individual supplier is very, very limited. There is not a, there's not something as a supplier's association, uh, let's say. But um, with that Star Alliance, that is, there's some things moving that suppliers have a word on what could be requested. From mm. brands and brands have to be accountable. So that is a very positive development. In that sense, I think there are things changing. Well, Ariane, thank you so much for coming on and having this conversation with us. It was really wonderful getting to talk with you. Yeah, it was My a pleasure. pleasure. Thank, thank you so you. much, Ariane. Okay. Good luck. Thank you all. Thanks for listening to another episode of Unspun and for joining the conversation to create a new vision for the future of fashion and home. Huge thanks to this week's guest, Aryan Lon, for sharing his perspective on the industry. You can follow Pactix on Instagram, at Pactix, P-A-C-T-I-C-S. To join the conversation, follow us on Instagram at WeArePopulation, or visit our website, WeArePopulation.com. Unspun is produced by Population, co-developed with Corey Cambridge, and mixed and edited by Compost Media Flow. Our theme music is by Richie Quake and cover art by Ryan Welch Designs. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.